Psalm 113. It is a uh, hallelujah psalm. I introduced that concept two weeks ago. It's a psalm that begins with that phrase, hallelujah. They're grouped together in the Psalter. Uh, Their focus is praise the Lord. That phrase becomes very important to the religious worship of God's people through the, the years. At the time the psalm is written, hallelujah means just what it reads like in Hebrew. It is praise ye the Lord. God is to be praised, you should praise him. By the time our Lord walks on earth, when he is coming into the city of Jerusalem and people are laying palm branches in front of him and people are are celebrating him, they are shouting the phrase, hallelujah, but there's been a slight shift in what it means. Now, not in the way it's said, but in the way it's used. In the time of the psalter, in the time of the psalmist, it means God is to be praised and is a command. By the time Christ is walking on earth, the phrase now means, O Lord, deliver me and answer me. I have needs, I have concerns, Lord, respond to my prayer. Now, both of these things are not anti-biblical in any way. I mean, obviously, the first meaning is the meaning from the Word of God, and that's what it means. The second meaning is, Oh, Lord, hear my petition. I'm in trouble. Answer me. And there are all kinds of biblical passages where that's exactly what the person who's praying says. But there's still something kind of profound by the fact the people of God over a millennia took a phrase which meant... God is worthy of praise and turned it into, oh, God, help me. One is a statement of gratitude and thankfulness. Hallelujah focuses on who God is and what he does, and you are celebrating that. You're you're grateful for that. But the other way of using it is based upon your need, the present, and your felt needs, um, the one is based on certainty. God is good and worthy to be praised. The other one is kind of based on anxiety and hope. There's something distinctly human in how this worked out and something fairly profound. Uh, The assurity of God's goodness and his nature became for us a plea for help. And and again, you have passages in Scripture that do that. But it's it's a testimony to the human fallen nature. We're already walking on water because God is able to do that, and his power undergirds us, and yet we begin to sink because we don't trust the power that is, in fact, all around us, and we cry out to God, Oh, Lord, I'm sinking. Well, but be that as it may, Psalm... 113. In Psalm 112, the psalmist called us to praise the Lord because God blesses the man who fears the Lord. He greatly blesses him. That's the purpose of the psalm. And the, the message there was profound. 
Um, we're used to the idea that God blesses righteous behavior, but we've never really thought about what it would be like if there wasn't a God to bless it. Uh, what would the world be like if good deeds were done, but God wasn't the one to in any way give a reward? And the answer was, this world would be literal hell on earth, uh, evil would reign, evil would rule supreme, and to be godly and selfless would be foolishness. But the psalm celebrates the fact that God does exist, and that God greatly blesses the man who fears the Lord. And in fact, we saw that fearing the Lord itself was a gift from God. No man does that on his own. God gives even that. Well, Psalm 113 follows that psalm up and works on a certain implication of what that psalm said. It's a no-duh kind of thing if you think about it, but it suddenly becomes profound in Psalm 112, we confessed that God blesses man. Again, it's something you kind of assume when you come to the Lord in Christ. But think about that. God, the eternal, God, the infinite, God, the all-knowing, God, the all-righteous, God, the all-powerful, God, the all-in-all, deigns to bless man. Man who is a vapor. Man who might live 70 years. Man who doesn't know anything. Man who is utterly ignorant. Man who is in rebellion to God. Man who has a sinful nature. Man who can disappear tomorrow. God blesses man. But then God does that, right? I mean, that's, that's what God's supposed to do, right? I mean, that's, that's what he's designed for. That's the niche that God occupies, right? That's the way it's supposed to be. And I say it that way on purpose. As, as most of you know us, you know that Carmen and I are cat lovers, and we, we take in, you have to be a certain level of, of uh, you know, down and out to get in the house, but we take in cats and we love them. And we have noticed that in their nature, cats look for the way things are supposed to be. Uh, they get used to a routine, and once a routine is established, that's the way it's supposed to be. And if you change the routine, they get all upset because... Things are supposed to be away, but then if you change it for a while, then it becomes that's the way it's supposed to be, and that's the way it's going to be from there on in. Well, we look to God, and we think about God, what God does, and we're used to God blessing his children. We're used to God caring for us in Christ. And so a lot like cats, we assume, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's what God does. It's part of his niche. It's what God is designed for. Is God designed? Does God occupy a niche? Is there things that he is literally for the way you and I are? 
In Psalm 112, when we looked at God blessing the man who fears the Lord, we saw that, quote, God had put man in his place, end quote. And that language is language we don't like to hear. We don't like to hear that somebody has put us in our place. It's offensive. But God created man from nothing. He he spoke creation into being. He, He created man out of the dust of the earth. He assigned man something to do the moment man was created. Man was designed for something, to serve God, to be his under-shepherd, to take care of creation. You and I have things we are designed to do. But is that true of God? Does he do what he does because he's like us? As we look at this psalm, there are six things we really ought to to consider. The first one is, this is a, a call from the psalmist. Well, what is the scope of this call? Our deacon, Ben, when he read the Old Testament lesson, read from the King James, and occasionally having a King James Bible around is not a bad idea. Because in King James English, uh, you get to find out where the plural U's are. In Hebrew, this is plural. Modern English doesn't have a plural U, so it just reads praise the Lord in the New King James. But if you read the King James version of it, it reads praise ye the Lord, and the word ye is plural. So at the very beginning of our psalm, the psalmist calls out to everyone who, who is able to hear, and he gives a command to them by the power of the Spirit. This is the Word of God. It's a command. Praise ye the Lord. It is not just a call to an individual. It is not spoken just to a single man. It is spoken to a group of people. The Spirit is calling out to, to, to mankind Praise the Lord, all of you, absolutely all of you. God created you for a purpose. He created you to obey him. God created you to serve him. The command of the Spirit as this song begins is, Praise ye the Lord. It's a large group of people that are being called to praise him. Well, how big of a plurality is it? Well, in the second part of verse 1, Uh, The psalmist explains who this plurality is. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. So the psalm is being sung by servants of God. It's being used in worship. And those who identify as God's servants, they're being called on to praise him, to be thankful to him, to be grateful to him. But then the psalmist goes on further and says... From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised in verse 3. All y'all, praise the Lord. Who am I talking to? I'm talking to the servants of the Lord. Where are the servants of the Lord? Anywhere the sun touches. Anywhere on the globe, there is a servant of God. Now, the one hearing the psalm might be a little surprised at that. Because God has a visible people that are his servants. 
They are connected to him by covenant, and you expect God's Spirit to say, Now all you who belong to God, praise the Lord. But the psalmist has literally called all humanity to praise him as God's servant. Well, how does that work? Well, the answer is, even though not all men are in the saving covenant of God, and certainly not all men acknowledge that they are called to be God's servants or that they have a moral duty to be God's servants, that doesn't change the fact that every son of Adam anywhere on the globe at any time in history is duty-bound to be a servant of God. God created all mankind, red and yellow, black and white. Every descendant of Adam is duty-bound to be God's servant. It's like when you read in Romans in chapter 13 and you hear that Caesar is a servant of God and then you look at the governments of man and say, how can that be? Well, the apostle is writing about what morally should be. Caesar should be God's servant. Now, Caesar is a rebel most of the time, but that doesn't mean that he is not answerable to God as God's servant. All mankind is answerable to God as God's servant. I mean, even the devil, you could say he should obey God, because he really should. He doesn't, but morally he is bound to do it. And so the psalmist calls out to all mankind and grabs hold of them by their duty to God, reminding them that they were created to be God's servants. And the scope of the call is literally anyone who hears the psalm, praise the Lord, all of you, all humanity. When should the praise take place? Well, that is the timing of the call, and that is in verse 2. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So the Spirit, speaking through the psalmist, talks to all mankind and says, you should have ears to hear, you should listen to my call. Having heard the call to praise God, start now and don't stop. You were designed to glorify and enjoy the Lord. You are hearing the call to do that. Do that now. Don't stop. Let mankind praise the Lord. This is a very evangelical psalm. It's a call to all mankind to come into a saving relationship with God, to be his servants. The psalmist is pleading with the world in that regard. And the focus of the call is specifically the name of the Lord. Reading verse 1 through 3 altogether, we read, Praise the Lord, praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name be praised. In three verses, the psalmist has referred to the Lord's name three times. That would mean it's fairly significant. What does it mean that we would praise his name? Well, uh, we have this concept even the way we talk. If I were to say, you've got a good name around here, uh, nobody is saying, you know, 
we've all taken a, a survey and we think the name Crystal is really the best name somebody could have. We're, we're not emphasizing how good or bad your name sounds. We're talking about when we think about you, whether we think good things or bad things. The name of a person is their reputation. And the psalmist is causing us to praise God for his reputation. And what is the reputation made of? It is made of the character of the person and specifically the character seen through what the person does. The only way you can really know me is to experience what I say and do. Uh, It's kind of the same with God here. God has said things, he's done things, he's been active in the world. The psalmist calls all mankind to praise God for his deeds, his words, his intentions. Praise God for who he is. Think of him well. Hold him in high esteem. The entire world of men has an opinion about God. Even those men who say, I don't believe God is there. In his uh, utterly ranting work, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins has a paragraph which I thought about reading, and I thought, you know, he is kind of poetic, and I don't want to give him any glory. But it's a famous paragraph where Dawkins goes on at length about how the God of Scripture is a bad person. And he uses every uh, negative descriptor he can think of to describe this God in, in negative terms, and you're left with the profound impression that Richard Dawkins doesn't like this person very much. Which is really kind of odd, because the nature of the book is to convince me the person doesn't exist. So how is it you can utterly hate and abhor somebody who doesn't exist? Richard Dawkins' fellow 20th century citizen, G.K. Chesterton, pointed out that you would feel very, very silly running up a hill and shouting at the top of your lungs blasphemies against Thor. And the reason is because you are absolutely convinced there is no Thor in in any significant way. And so if you're going to blaspheme Thor, everyone's going to kind of look at you and go, what's with him? You know, that's stupid. It's stupid because nobody believes in Thor. But you can blaspheme God because everybody at heart knows at a certain level there is an ultimate other, there is a God, there is a creator. Even those who verbally say no, they fail lie detector tests when you ask them. Uh, at, at certain levels, man knows God is there, and everybody has an opinion about him to one degree or another. And unconverted people, people who have not been transformed by the grace of God, uh, generally, they often don't think that highly of him. But those who are converted do think highly of him. And the nature of humanity, if we are to be truly human, we are to think high esteem thoughts about God, hold him in high esteem, praise his name. So really the psalm is calling all humanity to be human because humanity has been created to love God, to praise God, to hold him in high esteem, to think well of him. Um, That's what it's all about. Praise God for who he is, what he does, um, or it could be summed up... um, 
Hold God in high esteem and praise him for who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. If you think about God in any verb tense, uh, think of him well and holy. Hold him as the highest good. That is an amazingly broad and expansive call. It takes hold of your entire life and says, Whatsoever thou doest, do it unto the glory of God. Praise him in word, thought, and action for literally everything that God does. And the more you look for what God does, the more you find out there's literally nothing in your life that God isn't doing. Praise him for all of it. Hold him in high esteem. Now, the psalmist has no intention of taking a razor to that breath and limiting it for you. The truth is, he did call you to praise God for literally everything and hold him in high esteem for everything. But he does want to narrow down and focus on a particular theme, and that is in verse 4. It's specifically two things that he puts together in a parallelism. The first one is God's omnipotence over the nations, and the second one is the infinitely great glory, which is what God does with that omnipotence. Or to read it in the psalm as it is before us, The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. The image of height here uh, talks about a mount, but it also talks about lordship. When the psalmist says that God is high above the nations, it's not just that God is everywhere, although it includes that. It's that God rules over them. He has the right to control them. They belong to him. Uh, Nobody has has clued God into the idea of separation of church and state. God doesn't really necessarily hold that point of view. God sees himself as ruler over all mankind in every estate, in every government, everywhere and in every time. And he is high above them. He rules over them. He is the actual good to which mankind ought to look. The nations don't agree. When I was in high school, uh, I was told about an event that happened in communist Cuba. Uh, It was shocking at the time, and it was designed to shock us, but this kind of event happens all the time around the world. There was a a class of... uh, Elementary school kids, I don't remember exactly how old, but, you know, second grade, third grade, something like that. Um, They were told in school, now, you want ice cream, I'm sure. Why don't you call out to God for ice cream and see what happens? So all the little third graders called out to God for ice cream and nothing happened. And then they were told, well, now, why don't you call out to the state? Call out to Castro to give you ice cream. And when they did that, they rolled in a cart of ice cream and gave everybody ice cream. And the the story was very obvious. Um, Don't look to God for your needs. Look to government. Because government is God. One wag has summed up the book of Revelation saying, you know, you can boil it down to one phrase, worship God and not government. Now that's a little simplistic, but honestly, that's one of the major themes of the book. Worship God and not government. Now, why would that be a theme of the book? It's because throughout all humanity, that has been a theme of what's going on. 
there is a God to be worshipped, and he is high above the nations, and he controls all things. He maneuvers Saul to where Saul almost has what he wants, and then he can't have it because God works history. But there is also the nations of man who want everything that God is due. They want to be worshipped. They want to have the glory. They want you to depend upon them. This is not a modern thing. This is something that has gone back throughout all history. And the psalmist weighs in and says, God is over all the nations. And what he does is so much more glorious than what nations do that it cannot be compared. The greatest of nations with all their glory and all their monuments and everything they've built and everything they've done, the glory of God, and glory is an action word. We were talking about that in Sunday school. Glory is when you do something and people look at it and go, wow, look at that. The actions of God are so much more than what humanity can do that it is beyond the ability to actually verbalize God is to be worshipped because God blesses man. Just as we saw in Psalm 112, now the psalmist is bringing us back and showing us again, God blesses man, but why does God do it? Is it because God has to do it? Well, the psalmist is stunned by the fact God does it because he sees a vision of who God is and God is so much bigger, more glorious, more beyond the ability to comprehend than any human mind could fathom. And yet God does bless men. Years ago, when it was God's good pleasure to use me to bring a church out of the PCUSA into the PCA, um, there was an attempt to take over the congregation by the PCUSA. And some of you know the story, I'll just summarize. Uh, They sent an attack committee to try to seize the building, and that didn't go well because You know, wimpy theological liberals just don't stand up to Dutch farmers. But uh, there was a letter sent to us before then, and it was by the pastor who thought he was going to come and take the building. And it was two pages of him explaining to me that God is glorious above man, higher above man than men are above amoebas. And because of that, because God is so far above men, God cannot talk to man because we can't understand him. We think that God is spoken in the Bible, but God is so high above us, so glorious that God can't really interact with us in any way because God is so powerful, he's impotent. Well, the psalmist would agree with the letter halfway. God is more glorious and powerful than you can ever imagine, but he is so powerful, he can be powerful. He is so omnipotent that he can do anything he wants. And one of the things that God wants to do is God wants to bless man, but that's why God does it. Listen to verse 5 through 9. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, 
who humbles himself. And the Hebrew even kind of pictures God getting down on his knees and looking at something tiny and, and, and insignificant. Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he might set him with princes, with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. The psalmist takes hold of the infinite glory of God, the the inexpressible otherness of God, how separate he is from man, and is overwhelmed that God should care about people sitting on an ash heap. People who are like a barren woman who is mourning the fact she can't have children, but everyone around her doesn't see her as all that significant because all she is is a barren woman and therefore not really able to contribute much. The God who has to stoop down to look at creation, he cares about those people. He cares about the broken. He cares about the weak. He cares about the, the, the vapor, the shadow, the, the mist, the, the totally insignificant. God in his greatness, in his awesomeness, blesses man. And that is a wonder the psalmist can barely comprehend. He is awesome. He is great. And there is nothing that twists his arm. God was not created to do this. God wasn't created at all. God is, in the word of our confession, most free. He can do what he desires. He does do what he desires. Nobody forces him to do anything. He is above all things, and he wants to care for man. This is stunning. This is a reason to praise him. Nobody makes God answer your prayer. Nobody makes God care about you. God is not a theological system. God is not a machine. You don't push buttons and make God do things. He doesn't work that way. God is most free. He is above you. If he did not want to consider you, you would not be considered If God wanted to hold you as insignificant, insignificant you would be. But God in his freedom, God in his perfection, God in his all in all, actually does care about the servants of the Lord. He chooses to do that. And that is what this psalm is calling us to praise ye the Lord about. You should be grateful, you should be filled with with awe, you should be filled with, with, with a sense of wonder beyond expression that God cares about you, and he does. Now, what is the scope of the scope of the call? That can be seen in verse 9b. The psalm begins with, praise ye the Lord, and it ends with, praise ye the Lord. There is a poetic structure there where we begin with it and we end with it, which means that absolutely everything in between is about it, and in fact, everything in between is our life, and everything about our life is praise ye the Lord. 
Or as the way the apostle will put it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, um, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is the place of obedience in Reformed theology? In many Christian tributaries, obedience really can't be separated from merit. I mean, honestly, it can't. Uh, In the Arminian system, God goes halfway, and in your obedience, you go the other halfway, and you meet. And so obedience to God really honestly is winning his favor. In the Reformed understanding, and obviously I would say the biblical understanding being Reformed, I'm going to hold those things together, in the Reformed understanding, why are you obedient? It is rooted in your thankfulness and your praise. You don't earn anything with God. You can't impress God. God is above the heavens. When we think of the heavens, and we honestly consider them, their vastness should blow our mind. You go to a planetarium show, and you see the vastness of space, and it's beyond what you can think about. Well, the word heavens in Hebrew is plural. It talks about the sky, the stars, and what's beyond that. And here in this psalm, unlike in the paraphrase we sang, the psalmist says, now God is so large... He doesn't live in heaven either. God is above all of creation. He is above the universe. He is above the heavens of the heavens. Uh, he, is, he is all that and a bag of chips and more. And you're not going to impress him. But he loves you and he chooses to do it and nobody makes him do it. And every response that we have to him, whether it's verbal here, the psalm is calling us to praise him, or it's any act of our lives, any of it is designed to come out of praise, thanksgiving, and gratitude. And this psalm is a great example of that. The Christian life is a life of returning thanks to God for the grace that God has given. Now, as always, when we look at a psalm, our last question has to be, where do you find Christ in this psalm? Well, this one's shooting fish in a barrel because the psalm is about God being above all and yet caring about man and actually coming down into man's world and doing things even though man is tiny compared to him. Well, who is Jesus Christ and what did he do? If you turn to the book of Colossians chapter 1, and I could have gone other places. I could have gone to Philippians chapter 2 and such, but if you go to Colossians chapter 1 and begin at verse 15, the question, who is Jesus Christ, is answered in blazing clarity. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. 
For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. So who is Jesus Christ? He's the God we're reading about. The God who is above the heavens, who has to stoop to look at the earth, who has to stoop to look at the stars, that's Jesus Christ. But then going on in verse 20 through 22, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. So you want to look for God being high above creation and having to stoop and look at it, and yet reaching down to people on an ash heap and someone as insignificant as a barren woman, Jesus Christ is the absolute of that. God the infinite, God the all in all, not only stooped in Christ, he walked in. He came into his creation, he was a part of his creation, he walked among us insignificant people for the very purpose of being good to us, reconciling us through his flesh, through his blood. We've been talking about the glory of God, who is all in all, and God takes on flesh and blood and dies. The very essence of who Jesus is is in this psalm. God doesn't have to love you. God doesn't have to do anything. God is most free. He is above you. You are a brief thought to him, and he loves you, reaches to you. You don't reach to him. He reaches to you in Jesus Christ and lifts you up. That is who God is. Thanks be to God.